Good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament, beginning with Jeremiah 24. That's verses 4 through 7. And in the Bibles that we provide in front of you, that is found on page 652. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from John 15, verses 1 through 17, and that's found on page 901 in the Bibles that we provide. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Wherever or whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he, it is he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We return to our study of 1 Corinthians and come uh, in that study uh, to a point where I'd like to step back and look at the entire third chapter. We began uh, last week looking at the opening verses because uh, they conclude what Paul is talking about in the final verses of chapter 2. But uh, it's good sometimes to step back and get a sort of sweeping overview. And I think particularly here, if we don't do this, we may miss a very important thing that Paul is doing here. So... On page 953 of our Bibles, you will find 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to read the entire chapter. 
But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. While there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The word of the Lord. Now that's a lot, uh, uh, that's a lot of scripture to look at, and you may be wondering uh, when I'll finish. Um, But really what I want us to look at is is quite simple this morning. We've been saying every week that Paul is addressing a church riven by division and quarreling, caused by corrosive spiritual pride. But the question I want to ask this morning is, what lies beneath that pride? What is the cause of the spiritual pride that is causing so much trouble? And I want to suggest that at the very root of the problem in Corinth is a crisis of identity. Now, you have every right to ask, the moment I talk about an identity crisis, 
whether I'm not guilty of reading modern personality theory back into an ancient text. But I would argue that no, Paul makes it very clear that there is an identity crisis at the root of what's going on. And I would suggest that this is true as a part of the human condition, that every one of us in some way manifests this basic crisis of identity. What am I talking about and how does that relate to pride? Well, we know that pride is usually an overcompensation for a deep fear that we're not the people that we hope we are. And so we look for ways to feel good about ourselves, to bolster ourselves, to build ourselves up, and to project to other people this facade of omnicompetence and maturity and whatever it is we're trying to project. And we may be so good at it that we buy into it and begin to feel better than others. Now again, where do I get that from this text? Well, both at the beginning of chapter 3 and at the end of chapter 3, Paul says, what are you doing? When you identify, when you find your meaning and significance, your whole way of understanding, in this case, what a deeply spiritual person you are, based on which teacher you identify with. Aren't you just, basically he says, aren't you acting like children? Aren't you just being immature? You have no identity of your own, it seems, and so you're attaching yourself, either saying, I'm Paul's, or no, no, I'm Apollos's. No, I'm Cephas's. That's my guy. My meaning, my place within the church is from this identification. And this was not to them just a casual thing. If it were, it never would have come to a point of such division that Paul has to write a letter to them. Because the church is being torn apart. Their identity is found in their attachment to one of the other teachers. And so I want us really this morning to note four things related to this. We've already started on the first, and it's simply, uh, what's the source of the problem? And I suggest that it is this identity crisis. What is its manifestation? And we already know that. It's massive disunity. Thirdly, I want us to look briefly at what is the great danger posed by this problem? And then finally, what's the solution to it? So first, we've already plunged in. The problem is this identity crisis, that they are identifying themselves with something less than God himself. And I want to suggest that we do it all the time without even realizing it. I know guys who are pastors whose primary identity that comes out in every conversation is not that they're Christian, but that they're Presbyterians or Baptists or Methodists or that they're a particular kind of Presbyterian. Oh, no, no, I don't belong to that group. They're, they're insane over on the left. And nor do I belong to that group. They're insane over on the... No, I'm in the reasonable middle. 
Of course, the reasonable middle I've found as I've moved around a lot during my life is wherever I am. And uh, everybody else is falling off the edges. But we identify ourselves in this way. I'm reformed. I'm not just a Christian. I'm a reformed Christian. We do it in other ways, don't we? Even Christian people. Marianne and I had a typical Saturday yesterday. She was watching football, and I was studying in another part of the house. But just so that I could talk intelligently with her, I looked at, uh, looked at the uh, UT blog just to see how the balls were doing, and I hit it right at halftime. <laughs> Didn't look like this would be a very happy Sunday morning here in Knoxville. But what struck me, especially in the light of what I was studying in this text, was the incredible immaturity of the bloggers. Going after people who probably the night before were all in orange and drinking, talking, toasting the victory to come. And now we're just savaging these young people and calling for the coach to be fired. Why? How could grown-ups act so immaturely, so cruelly? Because they have identified themselves in some sick and immature way with the fortunes of a team, a lovely group of young people whom it's great to cheer on, but they have made it more than that. I used to be so struck. Um, years ago, Bill Sansom and I had a uh, coach's Bible study that uh, met with some of the football and basketball coaches on Monday morning. And I can't tell you how many times if UT had lost a football game or lost a basketball game, that wasn't even the conversation Monday morning. We were talking about the text. These were grown-ups. But then I'd go to lunch with somebody who hadn't even gone to UT, who had no kids there, who just lives in Knoxville. And all they wanted to talk about at lunch was, how can we go on as a community? I mean, I just can't believe. When are they going to make these changes? I mean, brothers and sisters, Christian people, And it's even worse right now in this political season. The things that you read, people whom I know are Christians and I see things they put on Facebook. And I think, what has happened to us? Paul says, if your identity is with anything that's passing away, anything that is less than ultimate, you are a child. You're just a child. Not ready for the strong meat of the word. What's the result? Disunity. This is why it is so tragic and why Paul is addressing it. He's addressing it because it's tearing that church apart. And the church is supposed to be the one place in the midst of a broken world, 
where you can look and see people, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, people who cheer for Tennessee and people who cheer for Alabama, God help us. <laughs> Coming together and loving one another and worshiping and serving and caring for one another. If they can't find that in the church, why should they believe the gospel? What's the result of this? Paul says it brings a twofold destruction. This is the danger. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. One of the great tragedies of the history of biblical interpretation is that many have interpreted this as referring to the believer's body and therefore saying that anybody who kills himself is damned. People think it's suicide. That's not what Paul is talking about. And if I were the enemy of God's people, I would want the church to think that's what it's about. Now, I don't want to say too much here because I'm hoping next week simply to go back and look at what Paul is doing here in the light of what he does in chapter 6. Here he is talking, and we'll talk more about this next Sunday, Lord willing, but here Paul is talking about the church. He says, you are God's field, and then he changes the metaphor and says, you are God's building. What building? His temple. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. No foundation can be laid but Jesus Christ, but you take care how you build on that building. The church. It's the church that's being torn to pieces. It's the church that Paul is calling on to stand together. And so he says, don't you know that you are God's temple? Now in chapter 6, he's no longer talking about the congregation. He's talking about immorality in the individual believer's body. And there he says, don't you know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? But here he's talking about the church. And he is saying, if you destroy a local church, God will destroy you. He doesn't mince words. He's saying, you, and I've known people who've made a career of this. They just go church to church, try to get to know the pastor, try to get into leadership, and then start their work of just tearing the church apart. Thank God for the strong leadership we've had here across the years. I, you know, I haven't had to deal with that here the way that I have as much when I pastored smaller churches. But there are people who, in the name of greater spiritual purity or theological, all the things that Paul is fighting here, go in and begin to cause trouble and tear a church apart. And Paul says to a group of people who think they're super spiritual, as we'll see later in this, letter. Don't you know that what you're doing is destroying the temple? 
And if you destroy what God loves, what God builds, what God is making, God will destroy you. Make no mistake. This is the single strongest statement in all of Scripture on the importance of striving for the peace and unity of the people of God. And when we take it out of context and misunderstand it, we lose this powerful warning. But I want to extend it just a little bit. Because Paul is telling us how seriously God takes our destroying what he loves. What is the basic unit of the church? Is it not the family? Does God not love the family? Does God not desire the family to be together? Do we not realize that we put our souls in jeopardy when we destroy what God has put together? That's why at the end of a marriage service, we say, whom therefore God has joined together, let no one put asunder. And so we need to look at our lives, look at the things that that God has done and say, let me press on. I think we'd all agree that probably the most beloved and best-known Bible verse is John 3.16. We hear, we all could say it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When When John writes, for God so loved the world, what do we think of for world? Most of us think of the people who don't yet know the Lord, and certainly they're embraced within that. Or we may think of planet Earth. But do you know what word John used that's translated world? The Greek word is God so loved the cosmos. The reason I love the word, I get teased by some of you, oh, you love cosmos? Yeah, because the Bible's filled with it. Every time the New Testament says world, the word in the Greek is cosmos. Paul uses it three or four times in chapter three. Wherever it says world, Paul is saying the cosmos. God created this cosmos. The heavens and the earth is called a merism, the two parts that include the entire whole. It means the cosmos. God created the cosmos. God looked at it, called it very good. He entrusted it to humanity. And if we just plunder and destroy for our own gain and our own pleasure, what God loves, this world he's made, Do we not put ourselves under the judgment of God? Do we not risk destroying this planet and in the process destroying any future that our children and grandchildren and the rest have? I mean, it's just incredible to me. Christians, serious Christian people should be at the forefront of every creation care movement, every environmental movement, every movement for peacemaking among the peoples of the world every movement toward 
bringing people together and lifting people up and giving a picture in time and space of what God loves, what Christ came to accomplish. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And so God's love is cosmic in scope, and Christ's redemption is cosmic in scope. That's why the Bible ends with the picture, then I saw a new cosmos, a new heaven, a new earth, and God makes his home with us. What's the solution? Well, it is a matter of identity. He says, your identity is to be in Christ. To the degree that you realize, yes, I'm an American, I, I, and I, I'm not at all ashamed to say, I love being a citizen of this land. On my father's side, our roots go back to 100 years before this country became a, country, a nation. But my identity is not an American. That's not who I am. I've lived now almost half my life in the state of Tennessee, longer than I've lived anywhere else. And by God's grace, this is where I'll die and be buried. I'm sure not soon enough for some of you. (laughs) But that's not who I am. God graciously called me to serve within a Presbyterian context. And I thank God for the rich part of theological truth that we see and that we bring to the table. But the church is one holy, Catholic, apostolic church, vast and glorious. And my identity is not a Presbyterian. I've been a pastor, but that's not my identity. I'm Marianne's husband. Thank God, patient woman. But that's not my identity. There's only one thing that ultimately matters, whether or not I am in Christ or out of Christ. In Christ is salvation. Out of Christ is death and destruction. And Paul says, live in such a way that the world will see a community embracing one another, inviting others in, calling all to come. Find your identity in Christ alone. It isn't just a small thing when we let ourselves get carried away. I'm not saying we shouldn't follow sports teams. We learn to worship by following sports teams. I'm not saying that ironically at all. Worship is first a series of physical actions in response to excellence, beauty, strength skill. Our hearts rise up. We stand to our feet. We cheer. That is worship. But do not ultimately give yourself, do not care too much for anything less than the one who alone deserves to receive all honor, all glory, all praise. We couldn't be a nation if we didn't have people willing to become part of the political process. To vote, you've got to go and sit down and vote for somebody. Yes, good. But at the end of the day, let the world see the church as people who embrace, 
whomever the nation lifts up. For years, I heard some of my Democrat friends say of George W. Bush, well, he's not my president. Well, he was too. He was. His little picture's there on the list. So, you know? <laughs> and now for the last eight years, I've had some of my conservative Republicans just love to hate Barack Obama and say he's not my president. Oh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. And we need to be the people who take our place and speak our mind graciously, cast our vote, and then say, Lord, use this person whom you have permitted to be raised up. We're entering a hard time in our history because whichever of the two presidential candidates is elected, the overwhelming majority of the Americans don't trust them. How are we going to do this? How are we going to move forward? By remembering who we are. We are God's people in the midst of this place, called to trust him, to pray for those who serve, and to seek in the public square and in the private family places to be those who love what God loves, who build on the foundation of Christ that's been laid and who refuse to be caught up in the division that comes basically from not knowing who we really are. I had to, and I'm done with this, I, I, I had a principal in high school, D.K. Pittman, who made good use every day of that speaker system he had a deep voice. This was in Charlotte, North Carolina, East Mecklenburg. And he'd come on, I can't make my voice that deep. It was a Steve Brown kind of voice. And he'd come on and tell us what we needed to be thinking about in doing that day. And he would always end by saying, remember who you are and where you're from. And I would just ask, D.K. Pittman, if I could use that for us this morning. When we go from this place, let's remember who we are and whose we are and where we're from.